This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to UC San Diego. Welcome to the Great Hall of International House. And welcome to this, the lecture series, A Life in the Law. Illusions Lost and Lessons Learned. My name is Alan Houston. I'm a professor of political science, and I'm the organizer of this event. I am delighted to have you joining us this evening. So you're here to hear from Bill Larac. Since Bill will be speaking about his own experiences, I will say only a few words. We know that he was born in 1946 in the Ohio River Valley. He was educated at the University of Pittsburgh and launched a practice in that city of steel, He came to San Diego, was, as many are, entranced by our beaches and cliffs and ocean, and has never left since. There was an extraordinary piece written about him by Jeffrey Tubin, published in The New Yorker in 2002. It has two wonderful lines, quotations from Bill. My second favorite is, so much fraud, so little time. (laughs) And then Tubin, noticing that Bill had not lived up to the Um, lifestyle that's sometimes associated with Southern California, also quoted Bill as saying, scotch is my exercise. (laughs) I love that line. Bill is one of the most prolific and successful class action attorneys in United States history. He has headed the prosecution of hundreds of class actions resulting in billions of dollars in recoveries for shareholders. Those of you who are fortunate enough to attend the first lecture heard him speak about his experience litigating against fraud and deception by corporate leadership. He has also pursued a number of exceedingly important issues around human rights abuses, including suits for American POWs who in the Second World War were used as slave labor in Japanese weapons factories. The lecture this evening is to address one of his most important activities, the prosecution of companies who profited from slave labor during the Holocaust. Look to your left, look to your right. You will see men and women who have directly benefited from the extraordinary, prolific, and profound legal career of William S. Lerac. Without further ado, please welcome Bill Lerac to the stage. Thanks, Alan Houston, Jeffrey, and Marcy, not only for paying for it, but for convincing me to do it. I appreciate it. My wonderful wife, Michelle Blaldo, but, and my daughter, Shannon, by the way, who's here tonight. Thank you, honey. And a couple of special guests I just want to thank, uh, Judy and Kobe Richter, who are here from Tel Aviv as our guests for this evening, and if you stick around till the end of the lecture, you'll learn more why. For me, the Holocaust litigations were a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance to take on corporate evil, expose it and punish it for what it did to the Jews and the others while working with the Nazi state, and try to obtain at least some justice for some of the victims of the Holocaust. 
In the late 1990s, my firm sued several large Swiss banks and German corporations in what came to be known as the Holocaust litigations. First, we accused three large Swiss banks, Credit Suisse, UBS, and Swiss Bank Corp, of stealing thousands of secret numbered bank accounts and safety deposit boxes that had belonged to Holocaust victims but went dormant when their owners had perished. We also accused the Swiss National Bank, that's their Federal Reserve, of assisting the Nazi state by laundering plundered gold including rings and dental gold from the death camps, which enabled the Nazis to purchase vital war materials. Later on in a separate lawsuit, we accused German corporations, Volkswagen, BMW, Krupp, Ford, Bayer, Mercedes-Benz, and lots more, of using slave labor, mostly Jews from the concentration camps, and forced labor, Poles and others from work camps, enhancing Germany's war effort and their own profits with exceptionally low labor costs. Working with, and at times against, competing lawyers, the World Jewish Congress, and really top U.S. political and diplomatic officials, we ultimately obtained billions in dollars of recoveries that were later distributed to approximately 1.5 million living victims all over the world. It was an achievement achieved and obtained against extremely long odds. And only then, after the investment of millions of dollars of out-of-pocket costs, and the investment of millions more in uncompensated and at-risk attorneys' time. Our two suits, our two class actions, ultimately recovered over $8 billion 20 years ago. They were the largest human rights class action recoveries in history up until that time. And sadly, as I will later explain, likely for all time. The suits achieved the largest financial recoveries ever for these victims and obtained for almost all of them the first compensation that they had received after the war had ended over 55 years earlier. But it was imperfect justice. Neither these lawsuits nor the billion-dollar recoveries are a cause for celebration because no lawsuit, no verdict, no amount of money could ad ever adequately penalize the perpetrators for what they had done or compensate those victims for what they had suffered through. And the suits were controversial when they were filed and they were condemned by many including prominent Jews here in America. And even viewed with hindsight now, 20 years later, the, the suits are not without some lingering moral 
and ethical issues. But that's all for later. Come with me now through this journey of high stakes, behind the scenes, rough and tumble, give no quarter, international class action litigation. Excuse me if I get a little personal, but it is part of the story. I was born in 1946 in the echo of America's victory in World War II. Even as a teen, I read The Rise and the Fall of the Third Reich with a chapter entitled The New Order, which explained what was then called The Final Solution. And it seared me. And the Holocaust became a lifetime avocation. Post-law school, I seasoned for a while at a big white shoe law firm in Pittsburgh, masquerading as a defense lawyer. (laughs) But then came a luckiest break of my life. I met and joined Mel Weiss, a fantastic New York City lawyer, the new leader of an up-and-coming, expanding field, suing big corporations and class actions for securities fraud. So I left Pittsburgh and came here in 1976. By 1995, Mel and I, with the help of a lot of other people, built the largest class action firm in America. Our cases would ultimately recover over $50 billion for victims of corporate wrongdoing. We were entrepreneurial lawyers. We sought out large, high-risk cases, all 100% contingent fee cases where we advanced all the costs, often millions and millions of dollars per case. And we got paid only if we won. When we lost, we got nothing. It was a very high-risk model when battling big corporations and banks who have unlimited funds to fight forever with the best lawyers that unlimited corporate money can buy. But we were very, very successful. Some think too much so. Our firm was also very politically active. Early on, we helped fund the building of the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. And many years later, I was honored when President Clinton appointed me to the board of the museum. Well, because of our success, we were able to take on public interest, worthy, intriguing, interesting cases that we believed in, but would not be economically viable. So one morning in late 1995, we pick up the Wall Street Journal, and there's an article telling stories about Jewish parents who told their children of secret accounts and stashes in Swiss banks before they perished. Heartbreaking tales of last-minute conversations whispered between barbed wire where people were trying to tell their children when it's over, go here and get what's ours. Well, the children who survived the Holocaust were blown to the four winds, traumatized, left to try to create new worlds. 
many, many years later, having lost or forgotten the details, women like Greta Beer, a few now grown-up children, start to go to the Swiss banks and ask for help in finding what was theirs. And the banks don't help. Before the banks would even search for an account, they demanded the precise name on the account, the precise number of the account, and proof of death, the death certificate. Well, survivors seldom knew the exact account name because they'd been coded to hide the Jewish identity. They had forgotten the account numbers, and for sure nobody had death certificates because the Germans didn't issue them. So we start thinking, how in the hell can we sue these guys? Well, there'd been a lot of scholarship about the Nazi looting in occupied Europe, but not so much about the neutral Swiss. This journal story came about because Senator D'Amato conducted hearings about these these uh, accounts that they wouldn't help the children find. The hearings had been instigated by the powerful World Jewish Congress, which had gathered together these stories of what had been happening and was demanding that the banks do something. Clinton gets interested and appoints Stuart Eisenstadt, an assistant secretary of the Treasury, to search the U.S. archives for any evidence of Swiss complicity with the Nazis during the war and to be the administration's Holocaust point person. Under diplomatic pressure, the Swiss Bankers Association agrees that ex-Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker will audit the accounts to try to find the lost accounts, an effort, unfortunately, that achieved nothing to date and never would so, so long as the banks controlled the process because they were paying the freight. Over the next six months, we sent people all over the world to investigate and gather what was available to see what the facts were. And the facts were horrible. At the same time, we were evaluating the legal barriers to, lawsuit, to bringing a lawsuit. They were equally horrible. First, the facts. Turns out those Swiss weren't so neutral after all. In fact, the Swiss were active partners with the Nazis almost from the onset of Nazi power in 1933. Here is what our investigation would ultimately show, the narrative we could present. <clears throat> it was in 1934, just a year after the Nazis came to power, that at the request of the Swiss banks, the Swiss parliament first formally enacted the secrecy laws for which we now think of Swiss banking. This new secrecy regime would give the soon-to-be new masters of Europe living next door a place to hide their loot and plunder. And of course, the Swiss banks knew already that Jews all over Europe were seeking a safe, 
secret place to hide their valuables while they tried to ride out the storm. As the Holocaust unfolded, the clever Swiss solicited and ran both kinds of accounts, the accounts of the perpetrators and the accounts of the victims. It was also the Swiss who first asked Nazi Germany to put the big red J stamp on passports of Jews in the mid-1930s. This was done so the Swiss could identify and exclude Jews at the border, keeping them out of Switzerland and in Nazi-controlled Europe, enhancing demand for the Swiss banker's newest product, a safe place to hide threatened assets and money. Then, as the Holocaust unfolded over the next decade, the Swiss banks helped the Nazi officials move their personal plunder and loot into their secret accounts. The Swiss banks also got Jews from all over Europe to send their most precious assets to the safest and most secret banking system in the world into coded accounts and secret deposit of boxes. But the banks betrayed the Jews from the beginning. The Swiss banks facilitated what were known as forced account transfers, where Nazis got Jews in Europe to transfer their accounts over to Nazis, which the Swiss banks accommodated. But even worse, sometimes the Swiss bankers leaked the secret account identity to the Nazis so they could go and find the account holder and force them to give up the accounts. Finally, we alleged they destroyed as many of the records as they could to hide what they had done. Now, to complete this narrative of Swiss national conspiracy, we further would later allege that the Swiss National Bank really functioned as the Nazi central bank after the German Reich Bank was excluded from world finance in the late 1930s and Germany's currency became valueless outside the Reich. So the Swiss bank, Swiss central bank, laundered the Nazi stolen gold from Europe, including the dental gold, the rings, and the like from the death camps, converting it into Swiss francs, and then that was used to buy vital war materials which prolonged the war. The United States objected to this during the war, and the Swiss continued to do it. After the war, the few Jews that have now survived crawl out of Europe and watch what they do. While the ashes are literally still warm in the ovens in 46, the Swiss, eager to make up with the United States, agree to give up $250 million in gold to the Allies, not to the victims. But the Swiss also establish a $6 million fund for these lost accounts, which they say number about 1,000. Now watch what they do. In 1946, the banks send a notice by mail to 1,000 account holders 
90% of whom are dead, at addresses all over war-torn Europe, many of which actually no longer existed, in the devastated company, countries that did not have functioning postal systems. Hell, at this time in Europe, people were still pinning notes to tree stumps to try to communicate with each other. Just a million dollars was paid out. It was a complete charade. But from now on, it was case closed for the Swiss. For the next 50 years, they stonewall, hide behind their secrecy laws. We can only search if you've got the account number, the name, and the death certificate. Why were these bankers so obdurate? After all, isn't it the law that lost or dormant accounts escheat to the state here in America? Well, not in Switzerland. There is no street law. The banks get to keep the loot. The banks were stealing these accounts of their customers, the dead Jews and their heirs. <clears throat> that was a pretty good factual picture for a lawsuit. Now stop for a minute, and I want to switch, switch to the German slave labor part of the case. Unlike the mostly secret Swiss complicity, uh, the Nazis' use of slave labor and, 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 and forced labor was very, very well known and very well documented. <clears throat> German corporations used millions of forced laborers. Forced laborers were mostly non-Jews from the East. Slave laborers were mostly Jews from concentration camps who had been spared immediate execution. The most fortunate forced labors, laborers often were inside munition plants. But really, the conditions for the forced laborers were most often very, very horrible. As to slave labor, wasn't even worth the name. Across occupied Europe, Jews were simply worked to death in a series of huge camps that were surrounded by industrial facilities. You know a slave owner at least tries to keep the slave alive so he can continue to exploit the asset. Not these monsters. Virtually nothing was done to sustain the lives of the slave laborers. They were just worked to death or simply murdered, sometimes just for sport, when it suited the masters. In fascist Germany, big corporations were business partners with the Nazi state. Of course, earlier they'd been the key financial backers of Hitler. These corporations sought out zero-cost labor because it allowed higher profits to be paid out to the controlling families and dividends. And the Nazi state supplied it because it gave them a huge advantage in the war effort. Prestigious German companies were involved. Krupp. Krupp was the royal family of German armaments. IG Farben was the biggest of them all. Now look, this is like U.S. Steel 
and General Motors in 1940 in the United States having 80% of their workers made up of slave labor. After Germany was defeated, we held the Nuremberg trials. Krupp and some IG Fabian executives, some industrialists, were put in jail. You know, originally, the offending corporation's assets were confiscated, and they were to be sold to benefit the victims. But it never happened, because came the Cold War, and that changed everything. By 1951, the Iron Curtain was done, the Cold War was on, the U.S. left the corporate war criminals out of jail and returned their property to them. We needed to keep con- confront the Soviets, and we needed German industry to flourish. Former enemy Nazis became our allies. The legal rights of the slave and forced labor victims were pushed aside. Then they were ignored. Then they were forgotten. By 1996, 50 years on, there had been virtually no compensation for these victims. A few German corporations had made a smooth few one-time small payments. The biggest one was a grand to a few thousand slave labor victims. Basically, it was a big goose egg for these people. The U.S. had to rely on diplomacy with the Swiss and the harsh realities of the secrecy laws and political alliances stopped any efforts to really pry open the vaults. If something was going to happen here, it was going to take tough, well-financed lawyers, independent of the influence of government or corporate power, to figure out some way to do something about this. Well, the facts were great. They were irrefutable, but the legal obstacles to bringing a lawsuit 50 years later were just horrible. Just for starters, the 12 Holocaust lawsuits that we could find that had ever tried to be brought anywhere, anyhow, had all been dismissed. So here's the challenge in 1996. How do you sue for over a million surviving victims dispersed all over the world? Sue banks and corporations headquartered in Europe for conduct 50 years old that was tolerated by, if not approved, by their then existing governments. Conduct occurring in infinitely varying circumstances all over the continent and where the documentary proof and the records you need to prove your case have been destroyed or are being secreted. The task was made all the more challenging because we had to sue in the United States. Civil suits hardly exist anyway in Europe. And there are no class actions, no contingent fees, no punitive damages, so they couldn't sue there. 
And for good measure in Europe, they have that automatic loser pays the attorney's fees. So if we brought this case in Europe and lost, would have had to pay someone's fees. So it's pretty clear nobody's going to sue in Europe. But how do we drag these European banks and corporations into a U.S. court for acts done in Europe and then yet hold them liable under U.S. law for what they did in Europe. Where's Dr. Tierstein? This is a difficult procedure, Paul. Okay? It's a very challenging thing. Well, go to law school with me for a minute. You're just not going to believe this. Amazingly enough, there was an old U.S. law, the so-called Alien Tort Statute. Enacted in 1789, it was the first law enacted in the United States by the Federal Congress. The Constitution had been adopted in 87, now ratified first Congress, and they have to fill in the judiciary that has been created by the Constitution. In so doing, they pass this oddly worded statute that permits aliens, and that's not like out of space types, that's foreign people, just to be clear there, uh, to bring a suit in these brand new U.S. courts for, for a tort. A tort is when you abuse somebody or steal from them or you beat them up uh, for violation of the law of nations. Now, what the hell did that mean? And you know what? Not one word of legislative history. They didn't keep legislative history in 1789. Why was this law written and what did it mean? Well, the best anyone could figure out is Congress wanted to let foreigners, aliens, who were victims of piracy on the high seas, a violation of nations, to be able to come to the U.S. courts to sue presumably to encourage commerce with America. It had never been used in 200 years. But I'll tell you something, given the German corporations use of slave labor and Swiss banks theft of the accounts, they looked a lot like land-based pirates to us. Luckily, there was one decision in 1980 that permitted victims of torture in South America to sue corporate perpetrators here in the U.S. and said that the contemporary standards of conduct today apply to the law of nations. And that was good for us. And a later U.S. law extended this law to U.S. citizens. So if this little theory worked, we could sue for everybody all over the world here in the United States courts. But the Supreme Court had never approved such a broad reading of this statute. But at least we could get into the courthouse. But we had a lot of other problems. Statute of limitations. Now, you, you don't have to be a lawyer to know this case as a statute of limitations problem, right? <laughs> Cases are barred after five or seven years. We're 55 years late. It was a horrible problem, and it never went away. There was a more serious problem, though. 
There's a defense called political question deference to foreign relations. It's sort of a complex defense, but it's meant to keep politically sensitive and bothersome cases out of the federal courts so that the executive and the State Department can conduct their business without interference. Courts always defer to the government. It's a terribly dangerous defense. And due to the ongoing efforts of Eisenstadt and Volcker, this was going to be a big problem. And remember, America had a strong political alliance with Germany. The slave labor cases were especially challenging. Now here we find there's an old, outdated treaty called the London Debt Agreement in 1953. It basically says you can't sue anybody in Germany for anything that happened in Europe until there is someday a peace treaty. This was part of the Cold War effort, again, to protect Germany and get German industry back on its feet. But then we never signed a peace treaty. The ongoing Cold War and the division of Germany prevented that. So this darn you-can't-sue treaty is sitting there in effect. Now, even if we can figure out a way to get around that, the slave labor case had a lot of problems. How about damages? You know, lawsuits are about money. No damages, no leverage. There are no damages for moral outrage. The law is a cold calculator of compensatory damages. And the damages were going to basically be the unskilled day labor rate in Poland in 1938 and 39 and 40. About $3 a day, just about a thousand bucks a year. And slave laborers had an average life expectancy of less than two years. Under the law, what was their labor really worth? Sadly, not all that much in dollars and cents terms. Now, there were punitive damages here in the United States, and this is an ace in the hole because the conduct clearly justifies it. But no alien tort case said you could do that, and the Supreme Court's hostility to punitive damages is becoming more and more evident. So the economic threat of these suits, while they were real, were not like gigantic or overwhelming. Finally, for this to work, we have to get this case certified as a class action. You don't get to have a class action just because you want it, because it's convenient, because it gives you a little more financial leverage to beat the defendant over the head with. The Supreme Court mandates strict scrutiny of a long, long list of requirements. The claims have to be typical. The common questions have to predominate. The class action has to be superior to other methods of adjudicating the controversy. And it must be manageable. Hell, it wasn't clear to me that this behemoth could satisfy any of those requirements, let, let alone all of them. And without a class action, we're going nowhere. Final thing. Even if you can get it certified as a class action, the Supreme Court requires that we give individual mailed notice to every class member all over the world, no matter how much it costs. And the plaintiff's lawyers get the privilege of paying for that. Just try to grasp the cost and the task of actually notifying these millions of class members. 
And finally, the risk of bringing the case for the hell of it and then losing it wasn't abstract. In federal court, an attorney has to certify that the lawsuit is well-grounded in law and in fact. And if you lose the case, the judge has to look the thing over at the end of the case. And if it wasn't well-grounded, as it was supposed to do, they're supposed to impose sanctions. And big, mean, vindictive defendants will torture lawyers who unsuccessfully sue them. And as we will see, the Swiss banks and the big German corporations were nothing if not mean and vindictive. So on the fact side, we're in great shape. Legal side, very bleak. What are we going to do? Well, we just believe the cases had to be brought. We didn't care how difficult they were, and we really just didn't care about the risk. Mel and I, and I'll tell you more, wanted to do it. Now, it looked like the 53 Treaty with Germany was going to block the slave labor case. So we decided, okay, we'll bring the Swiss bank case first. We're going to do it for no fees because we want to respect the ongoing process of Eisenstadt, Volcker, and all of that which we were going to be parachuting into as uninvited, and we were pretty sure very unwelcome guests. And I want to be clear about something. My partner, Mel Weiss, ran this massive effort day to day. And if any credit is due, it is due to him. I helped dream it up. I was present at the creation. I was a close observer and critic, and I might say a major financier of the effort. But by telling this story, I inevitably take credit that's not due to me. But that's okay. Mel's gotten a lot of credit for stuff I did, too. (laughs) That's what a great partnership is. And we had one. And this case was a real mutual labor of love. So off we went. We filed a 150-page, long, detailed, scurrilous narrative complaint like I laid out for you earlier. And we started it in October 1996. Now, in federal court, when you file a new case, it gets assigned, supposedly by random, to a single sitting judge. That judge, he or she, good, bad, or indifferent, keeps that case for the rest of the case. This gives new meaning to the term luck of the draw. But it gave us a chance to gain advantage here if we could be clever and lucky. Where are we going to file this lawsuit? What city? That's called venue. The plaintiff gets to pick because you're the one filing the document. Since nothing ever happened about this in the U.S. anyway, there wasn't really a right or wrong or exclusive venue. So we sue in Brooklyn. Where it happens, a lot of Holocaust survivors and their relatives and their heirs live. Now this presented an extremely intriguing jury pool demographic for the Swiss banks. District also had a lot of Jewish judges, and we drew one, Judge Edward Corman. And the banks hated it. But even those defendants didn't have the chutzpah to try to ask him to recuse himself or to transfer the case. 
Now, not only were we lucky in drawing Corman, but I want to tell you, the American legal system was super lucky. Because later on, this wonderful man will devote years and years and years of his life to sorting out and overseeing the distribution of these monies in both these settlements all over the world. We owe him a real vote of thanks for that. Well, when we filed the suit, we really jumped into a nasty brew of politics, diplomacy, and enormous egos. And we're seen and treated as skunks having snuck into an elite party. Edgar Broffman and his World Jewish Congress, an extremely capable group of people, but very important in their own minds as elsewhere and politically influential, did not want to share the stage with anybody. Volcker, in his pompously misnamed Independent Committee of Eminent Persons, Felt we were reigning, Volcker actually used a much more colorful term, on his parade and denounced us as parasites. Frankly, I thought Volcker and his eminent persons were a bunch of self-important big shots, computing first class over to Europe, drinking champagne, living the high life on unlimited expense accounts paid by the Swiss banks toasting everybody's mutual goodwill and accomplishing nothing. And the banks were even more upset with us. Now, you know, getting sued by Jewish lawyers in the United States in a class action assigned to a Jewish judge in a district filled with Holocaust survivors is going to get your attention. (laughs) They denounced the suits as blackmail. We were off to a good start. But you know, the denunciations backfired on him. Because of the very neat, detailed, careful narrative, the compelling, incriminating narrative of the complaint, these allegations had never been made in Switzerland before. And it caused a tremendous political uproar. And the suit becomes a bit of a political issue. Now realize the Swiss government is horrified at the exposure of what it has done, but it doesn't have the money. It doesn't have the bank accounts. So it throws the banks overboard immediately and passes a new law to create, for the first time in history in Switzerland, a parliamentary committee of inquiry, the Burger Commission, into the Swiss-Nazi-era collaboration. First time ever. And echoing our allegations of the destruction of documents, the new law makes it a crime for a bank to destroy any more wartime documents. Back over here, the Swiss banks hire the top of the top American lawyers. You know who these guys are, and these guys can walk into the Oval Office. They indignantly demand that our case be thrown out of court on every ground that I had thought of and many more. But look, this deference to foreign relations is critical here. If the U.S. government now goes to court and says this lawsuit might interfere with whatever's going on with Eisenstadt and Volcker, however ineffective it may be, we're done. 
and the lawsuit's going to be over. And here is where Mel Weiss and his skill and our firm's stature really paid off in a way that was outcome determinative. Mel convinced Stuart Eisenstadt of the unique value of a class action being prosecuted by a firm with our resources and expertise and firepower. They also got Brofman and the World Jewish Congress, however reluctantly, to see the lawsuits as a potential additional weapon. Look, we were unique. Only we had the lawsuit. Only we had ever stated a coherent legal theory of responsibility. And we alone threatened the exposure of the most horrible deeds by the Swiss in an open American courtroom with whatever financial exposure would attach to that. No one other than Mel, with all of his talents, and no one without a firm, with our resources and political influence, could have achieved what we achieved. And we forged a very uneasy wartime alliance between Weiss, Brofman, and Eisenstadt. They fought like Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill. They had rivalries, it was terrible, but they shared an overriding common commitment to get those banks to do the right thing. So Eisenstadt assured the government's neutrality in court. Boy, the motion to dismiss was still terrible. We were bloodied. We're standing, Judge Corman said little, and he didn't rule, that was fine with us, we were alive. But unfortunately, the defendants were really just getting started, and they were going to fight forever. And the odds are we're not going to survive forever because ultimately these defenses are going to wear us down. So we begin to vigorously prosecute the case outside the courtroom. We continued our investigation, sent the exposures to Switzerland, and kept the pressure on the parliamentary inquiry to keep going but the banks wouldn't talk to us. So the wartime alliance forged a more multidisciplinary approach. We began to use stockholder rights and litigation to pressure these banks. Big public pension funds in America control billions of dollars of stock, including stock in the Swiss banks. These funds were active in our cases and were known to us. Some of them were even controlled by ambitious politicians. The continuing bad publicity was not helping the Swiss banks stock, and these big pension funds begin to put the pressure on the banks to do something to clean this situation up. Then Moody somehow got interested and threatens to downgrade the bank's debt. They still won't talk. Then two big swings of the Swiss banks want to merge. Our class action's a liability that's in the way. The pension funds threaten to vote their shares against the merger. There's a conflagration, and tremendous pressure is applied to us to stand aside and let the merger go forward, and the Swiss publicly promise that they will settle the case. They make a public promise, we will settle it, but we can't be seen as giving in. We stand aside. They betray us, and total war erupts. They will not settle the case. Eisenstadt now issues 
a U.S. government report, a U.S. government report that documents that the Swiss had ended up with gold from the camps, that the gold was used to buy the war materials and prolonged the war, confirming what we had alleged. And even if he was unable, because of diplomatic necessity, to not say that the Swiss knew it was coming from the camps, we were not so constrained by diplomatic niceties, and nor was the Swiss press. They still would not talk. So while we're demanding documents, and the Inquiry Commission is demanding documents, incredibly, one night, a bank night watchman, Christopher Mealy, discovers bank officials in one of the banks in the basement shredding World War II documents. He grabs some of the documents, leaves the building, and he squeals. <laughs> the tone-deaf bank tries to prosecute him for violation of bank secrecy laws, and the state prosecutor indicts the bank for document destruction in violation of the new law. This is great, and pandemonium reigns. Mealy receives death threats, flees Switzerland, moves to the United States, and to this day is the first and only Swiss citizen to receive political asylum in the United States. <laughs> so, amid all of this uproar, the Burger Inquiry Commission issues an interim report, and it just guts the Swiss. It confirms virtually everything we have said, uh, how they consumed the accounts, and uh, tried to destroy the evidence even during uh, uh, the litigation, and it just creates a white-hot uproar in Switzerland. Then the Swiss lost the 1999 Olympics because of the bad publicity, and finally the banks will talk. After horrible brutal, secretive, trans-oceanic negotiations laden with overt and symbolic anti-Semitism, the banks finally were bludgeoned into settling for $1.25 billion. Now, I'll tell you more about that settlement later, but let's go back to the slave labor case, because as this baby is falling into place finally and getting settled, something happens that's going to bring the German slave labor case down off the shelf. As I said, it looked like we couldn't sue because of the 53 Treaty. But our legal team working in Europe, that wonderful woman, Deborah Sternman, fluent in German, indefatigable in the extreme, she finds an obscure German court decision involving East-West unification that indicates it's a de facto peace treaty as per the, peace, uh, the 53 agreement. So perhaps the victims could sue after all. Now, how an obscure court decision can invalidate a 60-year-old in-force international treaty remained to be seen. But it was a crack, and we scooted in that crack, and we got in the courthouse. But we still faced a lot of problems. 
Now, these suits were filed in March of 98, and they end up in New Jersey. Never mind why. I'll tell you someday. Now, look, the European companies, we got a different set of judges. European companies hate the U.S. legal system. As weak and pro-corporate as I think it is, but class actions are just a complete inconceivable anathema to them. And unlike the Swiss government, the German government was going to be 100% allied with the big companies. When we filed that lawsuit, Chancellor Schroeder, the German chancellor, condemned the lawsuit as a campaign being led against German industry and our country. It was simply inconceivable to the Germans that they could be sued. Using the same U.S. lawyers as the Swiss banks, they also indignantly demand that our case be dismissed. And I'll tell you something. Germany put the pressure on behind the scenes. Schroeder went to Clinton, and they demanded that Clinton get rid of this case. And Clinton did not do it, to his credit. But it showed... Because when the government agencies made filings in the case, they were very, very mealy-mouthed, very weak. And this case is now hanging by an even slimmer thread. Then while the cases are pending, we're waiting to hear the ruling on whether they'll be dismissed, the German government and the corporations unilaterally announce, oh, we're going to pay money, never mind how much, to these victims, all kinds of victims, never mind just who, through a voluntary foundation called the Remembrance, Responsibility, and Future Foundation. And if you take any of that money, you can't get anything out of the class action. Now, this is absolutely prohibited under American legal class action rules, but it doesn't matter. Neither the German government nor the corporations will negotiate with us. Then in September 1999, our worst fears are confirmed. Our slave labor cases are thrown out of court and they're dismissed. Lost on every conceivable grind is sort of like losing a shutout 11 to nothing. It's a very, very bad result. Well, we took an emergency, we took an appeal to the Court of Appeal and we asked for expedited treatment because our clients are dying every day, and it was granted. But it still was going to take a few months before the argument could uh, be heard. Well, you know what? If the Germans thought it's a political controversy that doesn't belong in court, can't be heard in court, well, you know, here in the United States, we have a First Amendment. So while we're waiting for the Court of Appeal argument, we decide to run a series of advertisements in national American uh, uh, newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, to see if we could maybe get the German companies to focus on this situation a little more. And we prepared this series of ads, which are run, and we can look at a few of them, uh, and we paid for them. The lawyers, the lawyers alone paid for these. Uh, first, we attacked the wealth of the German companies in this shameful and ridiculous offer they had made. 
Then we started with another one where we attacked their offer and showed how much money these German corporations were making compared to the lousy offer they were trying to foist on people without negotiating with their lawyers. And then we uh, ratcheted it up a little bit and started to work on a couple of the big companies that had sort of checkered pasts. Bayer had been part of IG Farben. Really, it was the worst of them all. It worked with Mengele and the exp- providing the medical uh, stuff for the experiments and just then using tons of slave labor. So uh, we did that. They, Bayer was a, a sub of uh, IG Farben at the time. And then there was the Ford Motor Company, which could be a lecture of its own. Look, the German part of Ford Motor Company was a major part of the German effort. Ford's got it back after the war. It's an ugly secret. Henry Ford had an American intelligence agent by his side every moment during World War II because of his known Nazi uh, sympathies. There he is getting the highest uh, German civilian award at one time. You know, he used to give Hitler uh, birthday and Christmas presents in cash. So we thought that might make Ford think about it. And then there was my personal favorite, uh, design, performance, and slave labor with Mercedes-Benz. Look, these were tough ads. Most people wouldn't have had the guts or the money to run them. We had both. But they were truthful, and they proved effective. Led to a tremendous 60 minutes expose and lots of very critical press commentary in Germany of both the government and the companies. Then in December 1999, as the ads are running full force, and just as our appeal of the case is to be argued in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, something happens. We never really knew what. Never knew whether they broke because of the pressure of the ads. Some of us think But what happened is Clinton, who was watching, sent word to Germany in his own way that the government was going to take our side at the Court of Appeal on a critical issue about the treaty. But whatever the true story is, the Germans finally reached out to us. And after more, I won't repeat it, ugly, transoceanic, secret, negotiations laden with a lot of anti-Semitic behavior, these guys finally agree to pay $6.5 billion, a half from the government, half from the companies, but they insist on using their foundation as the vehicle so they can claim domestically that it was voluntary, but of course it was not because they insisted on a settlement of the class action. Okay, now we had our settlements daunting task now is how do we locate the victims? How do we distribute what's entitled to them? And the task was Herculanean. And this task, too, was fulfilled imperfectly. Now, the Swiss banks had put up $1.25 billion. Now that the court was in charge and Volcker could be controlled, his team was allowed to audit the Swiss banks and look for the old accounts and what had been done and one thing and another. Here's what the audit showed. Between 33 and 45, six 
million new numbered secret bank accounts had been opened in Switzerland. The number has always startled me. However, the account records for over 50% of these accounts, about three and a half million, were irrevocably and irretrievably destroyed, gone forever. This destruction was deliberate and it continued during the litigation. For sure, these destroyed accounts included the personal plunder accounts of important Nazis and, unfortunately, the proceeds of countless forced transfers. Ultimately, about 21,000 possible Holocaust-related accounts were finally identified that were worth $653 million face without interest. Compare this to the Swiss bank's original claims that there were less than a thousand accounts worth maybe a million bucks. The claimants were located 20% in Israel, 33% in the USA, 14% in the former Soviet Union. At the end of the day, we distributed 726 million for the lost accounts over 100% of face. 255 million for looted assets, 287 million went to compensate slave laborers of Swiss corporations financed by the banks. The accounts were of all sizes, but the largest was a Blockbauer account, the woman in gold, a $21.1 million account. Those guys had dough, that family. $21 million account stolen by the Swiss. We waived our fees in the Swiss bank case. Some other lawyers involved asked for fees. They were paid $6 million, less than one-half of 1% of $1.25 billion. Now, the slave labor settlement was about $6.5 billion. It was ultimately distributed to 1.5 million living victims all over the world. Time was a-wasting. People were dying. You couldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You got $7,500 if you were a slave worker. That was about 175,000 people. You got $2,500 if you were a forced labor person. 1.5 million living of them. We used the existing German claims conference mechanism to distribute the money, and all the money was distributed by 2002. The suits were filed, remember, in 98. Lawyers sought fees in the labor cases, all of us. It was a more entrepreneurial type of case. There was no ongoing government process. The fees ultimately were less than 1% of the $6.5 billion. The fees were $54 million divided among 50 firms. Our firm received $7.5 million, $2 million of which was costs. It was the largest single award, and we deserved it. These cases were our dream. This is the kind of thing that makes a life in the law worthwhile. And if all we got was imperfect justice, I regret to tell you now that other victims of human rights abuses overseas 
will now get no justice. Any attempt to hold international corporate human rights abusers responsible in the U.S. courts today is an impossible dream. As part of its relentless campaign to close courthouse doors and protect big corporations and curtail class actions, the Supreme Court has issued rulings, believe it or not, that would make these cases impossible today. They got a hold of an alien tort case, finally, and they ruled that the abusive conduct has to take place in the United States. It's a horrible decision. How many human rights abuses to aliens occur in the United States? The law was always meant to cover abuses outside of the United States. It's too bad. There were other cases to be considered. You know, the Nazis didn't kill 7 million people without the help of the nation's corporate infrastructure. However, all the other Holocaust cases brought by other lawyers were later dismissed with no recovery at all. It's too bad, you know, there were some very interesting cases that will never be prosecuted. There was a reason the Germans knew who all the Jews were in the villages that they went into and could so efficiently round them up and do with them what they did. Well, those kind of folks won't face justice here anymore, and that means they won't face justice at all. Okay. A couple of final comments about those lingering ethical and moral issues that I wanted to come back to, which are meant to provoke discussion. Some made much of the fact that these cases were defended by prominent, powerful Jewish lawyers, Wilmer Cutler. Their firm became the firm of choice of Holocaust perpetrators, and they vigorously defended them all, thieving banks, and corporate murderers, and they did not, I assure you, discount or waive their fees. Now, to paraphrase Don Corleone, it doesn't matter to me what a man does for a living, but it bothered some people. And one Wilmer Cutler lawyer wrote, it came down to issues of conscience versus issues of business, and business won. But let me speak in their defense. We find out later when books were written, we didn't know it then, that behind the scenes, these U.S. lawyers told those Swiss banks from day one to settle this case right now. They were afraid of the class action. They knew it would be trouble, and it shows the power of a U.S. class action suit in the hands of strong U.S. lawyers. And I happen to know those U.S. lawyers charged those Swiss banks and Germans a bundle to represent them. And maybe that's sort of a little bit of extra justice as well. Well, I want to ask a question. Was it ethical to bring these cases, legally ethical? As the later dismissal of the German case showed and the later Supreme Court decision confirmed, there was a 99% chance these cases would fail legally. Yet, following them exposed defendants to millions of dollars in fees. And in truth, the cases were won more outside the courtroom 
than in. But the cases did state cogent legal theories. And most importantly, they and they alone provided a means for which the settling parties could obtain a worldwide judicially approved legal release of liability without which they would never have paid. Of course, the question is, did we charge them enough? Another question lingers. Did these suits demean the memory of the victims of the Holocaust? Did they trivialize them? The Anti-Defamation League condemned the suits as perverse and too high a price to pay for justice that we can never achieve. More than a few slave laborers and forced laborers denounced their individual recoveries as inadequate. Charles Krauthammer, of all people, said it was beneath the dignity of the Jewish people to accept the money and that we lawyers were villains and shysters who had committed a shakedown. Eli Wiesel, I thought rather more eloquently, said he thought the suits posed the impossible task of deciding between right and right. As I said, the cases and the settlements are not a cause for celebration. I think Judge Corman, you know, pretty much got it right. I would say one real benefit of the cases, though, was the emergence of more truth about how about so-called respectable corporations and financial titans participated in the worst human rights abuse in history. We really uncovered and documented things that had not been seen before. And that, to me, was priceless. And I think it's priceless that after 60 years of hiding and burying the past, many Swiss school kids today study the Burger Commission report. Well, no matter what anybody else thinks, I'm always going to be proud of these cases, and I really want to tell you why now, tell you a story. Years later, after all this, 2013, I was home from prison. My wife and I went over to Israel to teach at Tel Aviv University about human rights litigation. And uh, Michelle and I one night went to dinner with our friends Howard Finkelstein and his wife Lauren. And uh, what I'm, I'm just going to simply call a, a big-time Jewish power couple. Kobe and, and Judy, Judith Richter sitting here. Wonderful Israelis, wonderful entrepreneurs, heroes of the modern Israeli state. And we're sitting and we're talking and having a wonderful dinner. And the Holocaust litigation comes up. And uh, I noticed Mrs. Richter, I don't know whether she's like not sitting sick or she, she's got, she's done and she's got her face down in her purse. And as women are wont to do, she's digging down into the bottom of her purse and the bottom of her purse. And then comes out a piece of paper, which she now unfolds so that we can see what it is. Well, I looked at it. And I realize it's a check 
from the slave labor settlement fund from our case. There it is, dated December 18, 2001, 5,100 euros, probably 7,500 bucks with the exchange rate. And so what's the story with the check? And she says, well, my, my mother was a slave laborer, and, and she, she got this as, as part of the settlement. And I said, well, why didn't you cash it? And she said, you want to know why we didn't cash it? I said, yeah. She said, I asked my mother that, and, and my mother said, no, I don't want you to cash it. I want you to keep it. I want you to keep it forever. Because it shows we got those bastards. Now, that's the way I felt about this lawsuit when we filed it. And that's the way I feel about it right now. Thank you. <laughs> when I realized I was going to give the, uh, the talk... And, I, of course, this incident will stay with me for the rest of my life. I just couldn't really do this without asking them to come, and they were wonderful enough to come, and we really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you. You want to say something? I just want to share with you... Um, Kobe and myself are uh, really typical Israelis. Um, that poster there, the first one on the left side, is really my life story. If you look into it, uh, the title says Human Experiment and Slave Labor. Uh, the Human Experiment speaks about uh, Dr. Mengele experiments. And my father was a twin and was in those experiments. In fact, he was in charge of the twins. He was considered the father of the twins because he was one of the oldest of the twins and had encounter with Dr. Mengele every day. I found about it only at the age of 35 through the Life magazine that was hunting Dr. Mengele, and that's how I found out about my father. Then he told me the entire story. So I grew up in one typical home of Holocaust survivors because just contrary to my father, my mother kept telling us, me and my brother, every day, every day, her story of the Holocaust but her view was that all, everything that I did was another victory of hers on the Germans. I admit, I was a very ambitious girl. And I knew that everything that I do is empowering me and her because I'm becoming better than what she had experienced. There are two lessons that my parents taught me based on what they experienced and what they ex experienced in the Holocaust. And I keep, I hope, doing it in my life in Israel and my community activities. 
The first one is, my father always told me, the only thing nobody can ever take away from you is what you studied and you have in your head. So I was working hard and studying on my life. And I have a major activity these days in Israel in which I'm teaching. I have a, some kind of program which focuses on youth teaching them some heart therapy and cardiology. This group is composed now of more than 700 graduates, and it's composed of three subgroups that are studying together. Those are Israelis, Palestinians, and Jordanians. So I'm following that path, creating this world to be a little bit better through what people have in their education. And about my mother, my mother is used, she just passed away two years ago, aged 95, was a very, very happy person. I lived a very, very happy life with her, feeling very, very strong because her was my second lesson. All what you need, all what you want, try, you'll get it. I wish you a very good evening. Thank you. Three words, gutsy, fascinating, spellbinding. One question, will you continue to please share this story over? Oh, we'll try. Over and over again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. Well, thank you for sharing. I just wanted to raise a point. You said this was the worst disaster, and I'm a Jew, and my parents suffered through this. But I'm wondering, in the context of that statement that you made, how our treatment of the American blacks and, and the slavery and so forth that we had here, where in your mind does that uh, crisis sit? You know, or the American Indians, you know, this is a problem with the, with reparation type lawsuits. I, I don't think they were ever successfully able to figure out a way to bring a case on behalf of African Americans. And I mean, I think even that case would have made the problems that we encountered just overwhelming uh, you know, it just—it's a shame. I had a line in the speech, and I took it out for time. But it's frustrating in the law in that a wrong can be so massive, so widespread, and hurt so many people, and be so complex that the very nature of it prevents it being remedied. That was a real frustration to me in the law. Now, we overcame that here by wit and good luck, the Supreme Court would have killed this case if they had gotten their hands on it. 
So, Henry Ford, um, I saw a video the other day. They were flipping open the lids of the Nazi Jeeps. There were Ford engines in there. Uh, Shell supplied a chemical to fly the Luftwaffe. FDR did shut down a bank on Wall Street for trading with the enemy. Were there any, ever any suits against U.S. companies for their participation in this? Well, it was done through their foreign subsidiaries. And when we say Ford, we mean it's a Ford Wenke, it's a Ford German company. But there was tremendous intrigue uh, about how the Ford Motor Company kept control of that even during the war. And, And what I said about Henry Ford, you know, was true. The government, of course, took over Ford Motor Company for the war. And Henry Ford was still the chairman or president, but they literally had a U.S. intelligence agent with him all the time. They were very, very mistrustful of him. Yeah, my question is about uh, trying to recover uh, looted art taken from Jews in museums throughout Europe for Hitler to create his mega new art museum in Linz. And um, there's basically two questions. One, the easy one is... You mentioned the Supreme Court's making it harder to do class action. So does that impact the ability to recover the artwork? And secondly, there was a recent film in the Jewish Film Festival about the fellow that had 1,400 degenerate pieces of art in his apartment. Munich. And it was a billion dollars worth of art. And the movie ended on a pretty sour note, saying that Hitler passed a law that the people who sold this artwork or that it was taken from them could not sue for recovery, and still a German law, and it's being used to prevent the art from going back to their original owners and their descendants. The recovery of valuable individual art pieces is a whole nother part of this history and story. Class actions don't work there. There are individual cases involving individual families like the Blockbauers and the woman in gold. Uh, That is unfolding concurrent with some of what I've talked about tonight. It wasn't so much our concern. And in fact, near the ends of the cases, we had to be extremely careful. We got in a fight with that great lawyer who represented the woman in gold that got the painting back because we were going to sign a release in our case that would have impaired his ability to, to pursue his individual claim. And so we had, that was a big factor that had to be put in the releases. And they're still trying to find a, a, some of that art and, and get it back to its rightful uh, place. The State Department has an ongoing process. One thing when he had said about being gutsy, and I'm just, my jaw was constantly dropping at the things you described, and I found it extremely disturbing as well in terms of the companies. Um, But I wondered from your personal perspective, because most people would never have the guts or the motivation to do such a thing. And you were saying about all the people and all the obstacles, and I just wondered in terms of your own personal motivation or fear, did you ever feel like, I don't know if I can go through with this, or personal problems? No, I, I never felt that way, and I, I, I sort of wanted to be an underlying thought of the lecture. Look, this is why you need a strong, vibrant plaintiff's bar, self-financed, independent. 
because that's the only way you're going to get the. If we didn't make the money we made in the big commercial cases, how would we have had the money to hire the lawyers and send the investigators and invest the time and effort that we did to bring these cases? So I think that's, I hope, a lesson people would learn from this. If you have a good, strong private plaintiff's bar, you'll get good public interest cases brought that government, for a lot of reasons, just can't bring. And I really wanted to do it because... I'll tell you something happened during this case sort of bothered me a little bit. I was on the Holocaust Commission and would travel to Germany many times, very looked around, saw the camps and all that went on. And you know, I gotta give the Germans credit. They really have tried to confront their past. There's tremendous Holocaust and Nazi museums now in every big city. The children, the school children are taken there. Uh, it's required, it's mandatory we don't do that, we don't have a slavery museum, we don't have an American Indian, we, we, we don't do what they do but boy that didn't come that wasn't true when they got sued in the class action lawsuit, boy they were nasty, anti-Semitic ugly it, would, I, it just sort of disappointed me. I just don't think they, they wanted to be called to account. There's one thing, I guess, to talk about it, but they didn't want to pay for it. One Hi, Bill. Um, Ivy, I joined the firm, actually, I think, in your last year with Kogenstoya. But um, I have looked into this um, with regard to Vietnam, and I understand you feel like it's very bleak in terms of future lawsuits because... But there have been human atrocities since the Jewish um, Holocaust. And I don't know if you had looked into international law or international venues. Um, if you have any thoughts on that, I'd be curious to hear. Uh, <clears throat> the Supreme Court is not going to permit big international corporations to be sued for human rights violations in the United States. It's just not going to happen anymore. Yes? Well, you mean when we went there and where it could be? Well, that, what, what Michelle was saying is, it was interesting. When we went over to Tel, University of Tel Aviv Law School to teach, one of the reasons we went is Israel had historically inherited the old British legal system because of the Palestinian mandate, and it was an ossified, lousy system. So they had adopted a new, very progressive system, including a Rule 23-type procedure, which they didn't really know anything about. So we, we, gave, we of course, taught about this and some other things we had done, and our hope was maybe, look, this, Israel is the legal civilization center over there. This is one country with a court system that you can trust and, and people could go to. And we hoped maybe it could turn into a forum for international human rights litigation. Not very encouraged about that right now because uh, the system is uh, uh, persisting in its conservatism. So we can all go home now and see what has developed between the Pope and Donald Trump in the last few hours. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.